Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, as COVID-19 ravages South Asia, we ask what the outbreak will mean for the global recovery. Then, is cancel culture and deplatforming a serious phenomenon? Or just a talking point for people who complain about being held to account for saying offensive things? We shouldn't have taboos that say, you can't discuss this because you might offend somebody. That's not a good enough reason. Plus, the new MP whose gumboots didn't cut the mustard in Parliament. Did you have to buy a suit? Yeah, I had to buy three. <laughs> I like the, my gracious me, the one, the one that I had was like 30 years old and I think the mothballs, you know, the, the, the silverfish and the mothballs and everything else had been, the, been rid of it. We'll have that story shortly, but first, it is now a month since we banned people arriving from India, and the situation there remains grave, with thousands of deaths every day and hundreds of thousands of infections. Overnight, New Zealand cricketers arrived back after being evacuated from India in a private jet. But most Kiwis stranded in India have not been so lucky. Now, neighbouring countries are recording similarly concerning outbreaks. And epidemiologists are concerned the situation could have major implications for the global recovery from COVID-19. Professor Tony Blakely has been monitoring the outbreak and is with us now from Melbourne. Kia ora, and thanks for being with us once again, Professor. Just how bad is it in India, a month since we introduced that ban? Well, we do know that there's vast underreporting of the cases and the deaths. Um, we're not sure by how much. But it could be as high as 0.5 to 1% of the Indian population being infected per day, which is phenomenal rates. Um, and that is causing a huge death toll, which again is probably underestimated. As far as the number of people in India that are infected by now, it might be 20% or so, which means that it will at some point start to peter out um, and it will be assisted by vaccination. But their vaccination uptake so far is you know, 1% or 2%. So there's a long way to go on this. This is the catastrophe that we're all worried about happening at some point somewhere during this pandemic. It is happening now. We have watched appalling images over the last couple of weeks, funeral pyres in uh, India's biggest cities. How does this outbreak compare to the likes of the United States and the UK when they had their highest infection rates? Yeah, so uh, over here in Australia, there's been suggestion, I'll, I'll segue to this, that it's been a racist thing to stop people coming from India because the rates are just as high as what they were in the UK mm. over Christmas. That's wrong because people are looking at the case notification rates. If you actually look at the underlying infection rates and allow for underreporting, the situation in India now is probably 10 times higher infection rates than what it was in the UK around Christmas time. So it is 10 times as worse and you've got a system with the system being overloaded, the health system. So therefore the case fatality rates even higher because you can't treat people. So it is a lot worse than what it was in the UK or the US at their peaks. What is happening in neighbouring countries, the likes of Pakistan and Nepal? Okay, so the one that stands out the most is actually Nepal. So we're all struggling to work out what the true situation there is, but if you look at the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, a, a group in Seattle, they're actually putting the infection rates in Nepal at 50% higher, again, than what's in India. And we're starting to hear reports of the health systems groaning, lack of oxygen, all that sort of stuff in Nepal, just as bad, if not worse, than India. So th Nepal is bad. Bangladesh has actually come off and didn't get to as high, uh, so that's on the way down. Pakistan is uh, unclear at the moment. They, they may have actually peaked a bit, 
Um, and the rates are about one fifth, maybe one tenth of India. But I'm very concerned that Pakistan could just blow at any point in the same way that India has. Did epidemiologists make assumptions about the progress of the virus in South Asia? Yes, we did, and myself included. We, we were looking at the data about, I don't know, say July last year, and going, why is India not going off? Because we all expected a high-density population like that to go really badly. Mm. And we were starting to talk about things like, well, maybe there had been a previous infection with a similar virus in Central Asia that had lended some immunity. Uh, that appears not to be the case. What's probably happened is India actually did a very hard lockdown right at the beginning. You may recall that with mm. the pictures of people on trains and everybody relocating, and it caused massive economic damage. But it did stop the virus. And what's happened now is they're not wanting to do the lockdown. So Modi has said we're not going to do those type of lockdowns. You've had the uh, religious festivals with people coming together complacency in the population and a sense in India, perhaps a little bit similar to New Zealand and Australia actually, of we've beaten the virus, so there was complacency. Mm. And then it's just exploded now. So that's how I think we've got to the point where we are now. How will this affect the global recovery? Well, in several ways. Uh, the first one is we're gonna to need to send more vaccines into middle and low income countries to try and deal with this. The other thing is that when you've got a lot of virus mixing like this in a chaotic environment, variants will pop up. This virus is mutating as time goes on. So we don't know what's going to happen, but we fear that there'll be more infectious and more deadly or harmful viruses come out of this. We just simply don't know, but that's the concern. Um, on the, it's a really unfortunate way of saying, but on one positive side, it does mean that more people have been infected. So places like India will be getting closer to what we would normally call herd immunity. So those are the types of implications. It's, uh, it's not the way you want a pandemic to play out where you're actually seeing a lot of morbidity and mortality in a country, but it will see them move towards some form of resilience through some form of herd immunity. Are there lessons in this for other developing and densely populated countries? Yeah, this is really hard because they've got young age populations. They, they really don't want to use those lockdowns because they hurt so much the economy. But the lesson here is that you can't throw away those measures. You do need to use your lockdowns and your social restrictions when things are going off. That's the key lesson. Mm. And we're gonna to need to do that until these countries have 20, 30, 40% immunization. Once they get into that level, that will dampen down the spread and maybe you don't need to do lockdowns at that point. But those types of restrictions that Australia and New Zealand have used and other countries at various times, they will still be necessary until we get those vaccine rates well up Professor, I think newsrooms here in New Zealand have been inundated over the last couple of weeks with messages from people in India desperate to get back to New Zealand. In the last few days, Scott Morrison has announced that Australia will begin some repatriation flights for those most at risk in India. Should New Zealand be following suit? I find this really difficult. As an epidemiologist, the risk is too high from India and Nepal. It needs to fall by about 50 75% before I'd be opening that up. That's the first point. The second point is on the epidemiology on our side. We're vulnerable because we're not immunized. Then there's the epidemiology inside the quarantine. And certainly in Australia at the moment, the infection rates were too high in Howard Springs for them to cope and they're waiting for them to come down. Once they're down to a level that they feel as though they can manage those cases, then they can start bringing in more people. And I think that's a pretty sensible way to approach it. 
that's all the epidemiology of it. And maybe in Australia by 15 May, we'll have the rates down low enough when we're doing the repatriation flights. Balancing against that is the sense that if you've got citizens overseas, you should be repatriating them based on human rights um, and the citizen rights arguments. And I get that. But epidemiologically, it's quite risky because we know, we know in Australasia, Australia, New Zealand, for every 200 COVID cases coming in, one will cause an outbreak somewhere in the community. And we know how devastating that can be with lockdowns and stuff like that. So it will be easy to get to at least 200 people who are infected coming back from India, which means that if they're going to hotel CBD where it's more risky, the chance of an outbreak into Auckland is real. It's not fictitious, it's real. All right, Professor Tony Blakely, thank you so much for your time and insights. My pleasure. Coming up on Q&A. He was once labelled the most dangerous man in the world. Professor Peter Singer tells us his plan for cancel culture. And how will China react to New Zealand's Parliament's statement on human rights abuses? Hōki mai te welcome back to Q&A. The dragon and the taniwha, that's how Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaia Mahuta describes the relationship between China and New Zealand. But how does a dragon react when a taniwha accuses it of perpetuating grave human rights abuses? And should our parliament have gone further by officially recognising a genocide in Xinjiang? Economist and Asia watcher Rodney Jones is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome back to Q&A. So the New Zealand government this week expressed grave concern about human rights abuses in Xinjiang. What did you make of that move? I thought it was a good, a good start, but it's... And, you know, the arguments over genocide are reasonable, that there's standards to be met in terms of a decision and the context that we've done it before. So I think our position on that is understandable. But the, the debate on the day in Parliament actually brought up interesting issues in terms of how we think about foreign policy and how we think about trade. And what are those issues? Well, the issue is, it comes down to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. We've always linked foreign policy and trade since the late 80s, and that was the age of globalization. Well, we know the globalization's in retreat. And is what we've done for the last 30 years, should we keep doing it or do we need to think, take a different approach? So what you're saying is that when it comes to a parliamentary debate about whether or not human rights abuses are happening, there is a tension because in the eyes of some politicians perhaps, concerns around that trade agreement come into the equation. It, it dominates, it still dominates. Everything we look at through a trade prism and going forward, you can't run foreign policy. It's, it's like going to an arm wrestle with one arm tied behind your back. You just can't do it. So what might be a better way to go about managing that relationship? Well, we have to start to think, well, there's the relationship and there's trade and there's business. Mm. So we are at the point, it was so interesting at the, at the China Business Summit, you know, that first couple of hours was mm. all high level politics, foreign policy. And then the business part was fascinating because it's about businesses getting on, using e-commerce platforms, selling into China. And we have to kind of break the two. Right, so how would that work in a, in a, in a logistical sense? Well, businesses have to live with it. They take risk. There's, and also we have to remember, we've kind of had the state capitalist model with China. Yeah. The prime minister goes, we sign a big deal, a hundred businesses go. That's state capital. That's not how we work traditionally. We need to change our approach. I want to go back to that, that term genocide, which of course wasn't debated yeah. in the New Zealand parliament. So the British parliament adopted the wording for the debate, but of course Canada and the United States actually went one step further in recognising what they consider to be a genocide in Xinjiang. Yeah. Can you talk us through those distinctions? Yeah, it's, 
I mean, Xinjiang is the most amazing place in China. I mean, when you live in China, you get out to Xinjiang, it reminds you of New Zealand. You get into the mountains, you could be in the South Island. Um, you feel closer to South Asia. Mm. You know, you have that South Asian culture. Mm. It's an extraordinary place. But they are doing what we did. I see what's happening in Xinjiang is very similar to the invasion of the Waikato. You take the land, you destroy the places of spiritual significance, you expel people, you put them in camps. It's very similar. So w this is when New Zealand is trying to defend it. So does that mean that again, said what we did in the Waikato in 1863 was right? And, and so we have that shared history where we've spent the last hundred years understanding mm. what we did without doing it today. Yeah, so, so, so what you're saying is that if we draw a and, and I think most New Zealanders would would draw a moral line looking back at the invasion of the Waikato and say that was that is morally repugnant at least by New Zealand's standards today then how can we allow for something like that to happen with our biggest trading partner in 2021 exactly and we need to speak with a clear voice on that mm. that's what's happening in Xinjiang cannot be justified under any way mm. there's good people who have gone to jail for life for thought crimes Mm. That is completely unacceptable. What did you make of the Chinese embassy's response? Oh, well, it's, it's, uh, we no longer have the ability to talk to Chinese officials in a human way. So it's no longer people-to-people -people contact. They, have to, they aren't talking to us, they're talking to Beijing when they talk. Mm. That's the constraint that they operate under. So it's pro forma. They'll say what you expect them to say. Actually, the response in the Chinese media this week is, was quite muted mm. to this. It barely registered a, a blip. But that's because they're fighting on every front at mm. the moment. Mm. There's a lot of fires going on in their own foreign policy. Does that mean we should or shouldn't expect more fallout from this? Well, it doesn't look... They, they've got too much going on. Mm. And, and so their focus is not on New Zealand. And they can't be fighting on every single front and that's where international pressure works when the world says this is unacceptable they can't be cutting off trade with everybody mm. and that's the more people that work together the more we can exert pressure do you think under the biden administration it's likely that new zealand will be forced to pick a side instead of trying to walk this slightly ambiguous gray line yes yeah, so we have to look forward it's less to do with biden and more to me to do with november 22. That's the biggest date in our own calendar. In November 22, Xi Jinping will get a third term. Mm. He, that's never happened mm. before, since, since Mao. The success of China in the last 40 years has been changes of leadership, changes of local leadership, that growing internal dynamism with the party. He's, he's, he's frozen that. And so we face a challenging next five years and next 10 years, and we have to prepare for that. That's not about the US. I disagree. John Key said it was about Trump. It's not about Trump. It's about Xi Jinping, and it's about China, and it's about the next decade. And how do we prepare for that? By breaking this link, delinking foreign policy and trade. So Nanaya Mahuta should just be the Minister for Foreign Policy? Yes, right. and speak to that. And the trade and businesses can whinge and complain, but they just have to get on with it. Should New Zealand be doing more to support Australia and its relationship with China? Oh, well, Australia's kind of flown alone, but we need to recognise such is the call for the investigation into the start of COVID. Australia was right. They said it badly. They didn't build a coalition. Mm. But what they said was right. We should have been more supportive of that in different, different ways. OK, how could we have supported the Aussies? By signing up to that 14, when 14 countries came mm. together to say the WHO investigation was inadequate, we should have signed up for that. Where are we with the pandemic? I know you have been fur furiously um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, modelling the data, the international data for some time. It's been a long time. Yeah, 
There's elements of hope in India. Um, when you look at Delhi and Maharashtra, the curve is starting to flatten out and the positivity rate coming down. Mm. I think what Tony Blakely just was a fantastic interview. If people missed it, they should look at it. Um, it's, you know, the number of cases is much larger than we did 400,000 today. The true number of cases is much higher, mm. certainly 2 million and above. So the curve, it's still not good, and, but states are locking down. Uh, most states now, I think, except for a couple, are locked down. Mm. And so the curve will bend, but it's just a complete tragedy to and, watch. And from, from a modelling perspective, not to want to remove the human element in yeah. all of this, how do you see it affecting the global recovery? Oh, well, what we've got is we've got this bifurcation. So you look at Israel, and New Zealand's very fortunate it's one of the best things the government's done is get the Pfizer. Mm. We're, we're, you know, we're so fortunate to have Pfizer. Which is the same vaccine that's been rolled out in Israel. Yes. Yeah. And so Israel is heading, to, we think, to, to, towards zero cases. So right. vaccination works. Vaccination does provide a way out of this pandemic. The issue is going to be producing enough and how long it takes to get the world vaccinated. And then there's other issues, such as the Chinese vaccines, which they've promoted hard, being less effective. Mm. What did you make of Biden's decision to, to call for patents on the COVID-19 well, seems to be waived. I, I, I'm not an expert and it sounds in practice it's not going to help mm. that much but an important symbolic statement. Mm. Alright, Rodney Jones it's always so great to speak. Thank you. Coming up, some of the least dignified scenes in Parliament for some time and at the very centre the Speaker, the person responsible for maintaining decorum in the House. Should Trevor Mallard keep his job? Our panel is here next. That man's life was destroyed when he sexually assaulted a woman. That's, that's, that's what did it. That was Speaker Trevor Mallard during a fiery debate in the House this week. He previously accused a former parliamentary staffer of rape and settled a defamation suit which cost the taxpayer $330,000. The Prime Minister criticised his behaviour in that debate in Parliament this week. So what do our panellists think of the saga? Lawyer and National Party member Liam Here, Auckland University lecturer Lara Greaves and Far North District Councillor Mukutepania Tena Koto. Welcome to the show. Morena. Liam, I know you've got some strong thoughts on <laughs> Trevor Mallard's behaviour. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I did think it was pretty um, disgraceful. I mean, it wasn't one of the most glorious moments in the history of New Zealand's Parliament. Uh, you know, I don't watch Parliament TV usually. I'm not that much of a politics nerd. But a friend texted me saying, you've got to tune in. And it was just, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this, the role of speaker is meant to be a role of some uh, dignity and gravitas. You know, it requires a lot of discipline. Um, and, you know, uh, it's not, not for the first time uh, the speaker has shown that, it, you know, he's not really up to it in that regard. What did you think, Lara? I think just generally this is speaking to parliamentary culture in a bad way. So firstly, the public kind of doesn't really like politics as much as all of us, right? So I think when they see the politicians bickering again, they go, ooh, yuck. Um, and I think beyond that, though, is who loses out in all of this is people that have been like sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, bullied at work. And I think people who lose out are those people in that parliamentary culture. I mean, as a politics lecturer, I teach hundreds of students in New Zealand politics. And I think, you know, especially like our young woman, like our Māori and Pacifica, like our sort of diverse representative young people like do we mm. want to send them into that environment and that really like speaks to that whole idea that our politics might be 
a bit toxic. You certainly didn't get the sense watching that, the debate this week, that the victims were front and centre in the politicians' minds, did you? No, not at all. And that's really what, where we should be centering things because ultimately, yeah, some people, there, there is evidence that some people have been harassed and assaulted. Mokokio for Karo. What do you think? Oh, honestly, you have to take it seriously. Um, but when you saw the speaker's behaviour, um, and when we've seen what happened to the former Minister of Health, uh, Mika Whaiteri, I think a demotion is on the cards, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. interesting to see the Prime Minister speaking out pretty strongly against Trevor Mallard, but is she going to maintain her confidence? Uh, I think so. I mean, look, um, the reality is, is, you know, the general public have a limited appetite for being outraged about this kind of thing. I mean, it is wrong for the Speaker to have behaved in that way, to have brought it up again. I mean, having caused the issue in the first place and created um, this controversy around something that should have been handled quite sensitively, for him to bring it up again is pretty disgraceful. But for the Prime Minister to go and, um, and remove him would cause a big troubles within her own party. It would be a very mm -hmm. hard thing to do. So there's no real reason why she, she would do it. And I think that speaks to one of the problems of politics mm. is that it's all very well to talk about compassion and kindness, but um, the minute that party interest comes into it, those principles go out the Party door. interests are always part of it, right? They're always part of it. And, and I, I think it's really intriguing to see the National Party's position on this over the last few months because, of course, they've been, they've been calling for Trevor Mallard's scalp for some time now. It's clear that this isn't the sort of thing that actually resonates with the general public. They're not that interested in the role of the speaker and necessarily in his behaviour. Yeah, which is not to say, though, that it's, it's not, not important. important. No, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, in six months' time, I wouldn't be surprised if we find out that Trevor Mallard's been posted somewhere else, basically. <laughs> A diplomat. <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Ambassador Mallard, maybe. yeah. <laughs> from, from one position requiring decorum and, and measured responses to another. Let's talk about um, some of the big developments this week. Um, with the free pay agreement uh, and the pay freeze. Did you see the pay freeze coming, Moko, and what was your analysis of that call? I, I did think that it, something to that effect would come across, but I'm against it, and I'm against it because I'm a, I'm a teacher eight years now, and you go to university for four years and you start way down the bottom and you slowly work your way up, and, um, and a pay freeze will be really damaging for the actual skilled workers we need in the public sector because uh, if we don't get it, they'll just jump across to the private sector. So why did they do it? Why do you think they announced it? Why did they do it? Uh, because they need to be saving face somewhere. Uh, they need to be looking at the voters that they're getting. And um, by doing this, they're actually showing that we're showing some measure and counterbalance to the spend up we're doing. Mm. Is it in the context of the fair pay agreement, do you think, Lara, that uh, the decision on the pay freeze makes a little more sense? Yeah, it does. I think this sort of announcement came out and the comms on it were particularly bad. So friends working in the public sector, they didn't, they found out from the media, right? Mm. They didn't find out from their bosses, like that classic email from HR. They found out from you guys in the media. And so that's probably not particularly acceptable. The comms on it were really interesting because it was like, you guys did a good, really good job during COVID, but we're going to freeze your pay. And I think it's really troubling because there are a lot of sort of young people starting out in their career now and like, it's, it's those sort of that 60 to 100 grand range doesn't necessarily sound like it's I mean turning around and then kind of giving money to that sort of those lower income earners sort of bus drivers and stuff it makes it really hard for us to criticize them restricting income in that range like I think the way that they have sort of announced it was kind of masterful in a way because we feel a bit awkward but you have to really feel for a lot of those like early career people in that 
that income range because like rents are just going to come up right right and then the cost of living it's just going to be really hard for them to get by i mean i don't disagree with pay freezes but the range that it's at the mm. capping that they've got there is what i have an issue with where would you like to see it a pay freeze where would be a more appropriate range do you think <laughs> the top of the cap for a teacher is 80k i think yeah, something okay. there but yeah you know, 60k is like four years in deep before you even reach there. But again, who is this for? Yeah. Who, what, what, what is the? I don't understand because I mean, is, the fiscal concerns that we have. I mean, sure, absolutely, we're taking on significant amounts of debt at the moment. But when compared to most other developed countries, our sovereign debt is nothing. Yeah. Look, I know it's a populist move, right? It is populist. Is it? It is. It is. It is. With who? But no. But <laughs> certainly not with Labour. It's a middle. Yeah. It is a. But it was. It's a. It's a populist move. But it hasn't worked, right? It's. Mm. it's a failed attempt and you know you say it was masterful when um to then have the fair pay yeah but that fair pay announcement was announced on a friday mm. you wouldn't normally announce a big policy like that on a friday so i think there was dam big damage yeah. control aspect to it mm. so look i mean when it happened um you know obviously most of my friends are more on the fiscal conservative side and at first they were sort of a bit pleased about it because you know i think actually public sector pay has in terms of increases mm. outpaced private sector pay for a while and in certain sectors um actually the private sector just can't compete, and mm. law is one of them. Um, but it's such a blunt tool, and what, what people realised over the following days was that it's going to cut in at, for people in frontline services, doctors, nurses, mm. teachers, um, you know, um, police officers, the army, all these people where we actually do struggle to re retain and recruit yeah. people. And because it's an absolute freeze, that's an effective pay decrease over yeah. that three-year period. Yeah. So it's, um, it, it, it's, it's just a self-inflicted blow by the government. And as you say, um, the savings are, are, are pennies on a dollar compared mm. to the overall fiscal picture. Yeah. What is the likelihood this actually remains in place over the next year? Yeah, I was just going to say that the public likes like the doctors, the, the teachers and the nurses a lot more than they like as, the politicians, as, right? As, as, as we see... respond from COVID-19 as well, yeah. you can imagine people in the health sector saying, oh, actually, I think we do deserve a bit of yeah. money. Sorry, love. And you can see like with the populism thing where you would target the bureaucrats where you would target the people working for the ministries you know the people working in the big glass offices with their big post-it notes those people you target them yeah. not the nurses I think ultimately it's gonna be interesting to see how they sell this and I mean whether we will all just get distracted with the budget as mm -hmm. well that's the other thing because well, that's coming up well that I mean I, I, I wondered how that was perhaps um, figuring in the finance ministers and, and the Prime Minister's reckoning around this as well because we know that um, Labour has historically been concerned about being criticised as being a tax and spend party and that I mean this goes right back to the budget responsibility rules when they first came to power. This is obviously a concern for them. Do you think mm -hmm. this perhaps um, we can read into this, Liam, that this might suggest some significant spending come the budget in a week and a half's time? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've had speculation around that before. You know, um, when the COVID budget came out, oh, we're going to be converting to full Venezuelan socialism, you know, mm. and it was a really conservative budget that Bill English could have delivered. Mm. I think um, uh, Grant Robertson... He does. I think he does tend to admire Bill English. I think he reveres those and Michael Cullen, those people who had reputations for being very prudent, very good with the books. Mm. I think he just he's averse to anything really big or revolutionary on the on the fiscal scene. Mm. Okay, I want to talk about uh, Moko, your week. You've had, <laughs> you've had a significant week. So the Far North District Council this week voted to establish Māori wards. This is a movement that you have been campaigning for for some time now. Just talk us through that vote and the significance for you. Oh, honestly, right until the very last minute where we went to the vote, I still didn't think we had the numbers to get it over, but we did. 
and I'm incredibly proud of the fact that Northland Te Taitokero, the home of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, is now the first region in our country where all councils have established Māori wards to give effect to one part of the Treaty of Waitangi, so it's awesome. How do you think, um, or what was it about your campaign that you think helped sway your colleagues? Um, well, we, I had to do a notice of motion to bring it back to the table. Mm. Uh, and then obviously we had um, speakers from our different iwi and hapu in the whānau. We have 11 iwi mm. and 257 hapu. And they spoke so powerfully on the day that it did sway councillors to jump ship, mm. uh, to vote for establishing Māori wards to give effect to, in the Local Government Act, um, increasing Māori participation and engagement in local government. And we responded to their calls in the right way. Mm. It's really interesting to consider that that, uh, that moment in the context of some of the broader mm. political noise around um, sovereignty and Māori self-determination at the moment, isn't it, Lara? Because um, clearly this is something that our major parties are beginning to reckon with in a more active way. Yeah, and it is looking like we will kind of all of these little sort of things over time will build up to Māori being able to more assert you know, rangatiratanga as promised you know, under the treaty. So it's kind of that gradual step thing. It's really interesting the way that National is reacting, and I think Liam can probably speak more to that, but how National's reacting because you know, on, on the one hand they're going, oh, they're sort of working group that they had on, on their election campaign recommended they run in the Māori seats, that they sort of have a Māori board member and they kind of move to a more pro-Māori perspective on this, but then on the other hand they've been sort of going on about the Māori wards being sort of separatism and talking about the independent Māori health authority. So that's been kind of quite interesting, something that I've been watching, eh? Mm. I think it's actually laughable to say that we're going to stand in central government seats mm. but we don't agree with local government seats and the Māori Representation Act is come out 164 years ago which put Māori electorates for parliament and well, now we're seeing this in local government. So, so important to note of course that National didn't come out giving against having local Māori electorates or wards. They just came against the law change. The law change yeah. to yeah. remove the referendum. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I know, you know, but it is... Dog whistle much. I mean, it's a, it's a, there is a distinction there, but, but to, to Moko's point, is there an incoherence with National's messaging around the, these broader issues of tino rangatiratanga at the moment? Because, I mean, I mean, for example, you, they opposed the, the independent Māori Health Authority, but of course, National helped to establish Fano Water, yeah. which and and cool, you know, and and, and and are the first to point to Fano Water's successes. Yeah. And then you have that distinction again between running in the Māori seats at a national level. Yeah. but maybe having some concerns around Māori electorate. So the the difficulty National has is that it hasn't developed a a coherent, positive, easy to articulate doctrine around Crown Iwi relations that it, that, that it can base all of its decisions on. So that it can say, right, well, we are opposed to the specific measure, but here's what we are in favour, mm. right? So it sounds like they're just opposing all the time and they don't present, a, they can't always pre present a positive alternative because they don't have that clearly developed party doctrine, as, as you say. And that is a problem for the party because developing that is going to be a really important way of the National Party to get in power again. Mm. It's not 2005 anymore, it just isn't. I was just at the Lawlink conference and every speaker, this is a pri private sector gathering, every speaker introduced themselves with some words of today, not necessarily a whole PPR, but it's just the country has moved on from that part. And unless National can develop a coherent doctrine that can is acceptable and uh, you know can appeal to their members, but also to the wider country, uh, the party's going to struggle in these areas. Do you think Labor's doing a better job of that, Lara? Yeah, and I think ultimately the voters are moving on, the demographics are changing. We're like sort of moving towards that super diversity or the idea that we're going to have more and more Māori in the population, more and more people from sort of like different like Pacific. Mm. 
Black mm. and Asian backgrounds as well. And we're kind of, people are looking for that positive articulation of like how, how does everything fit together and how do we go forward as a country? Yeah, H how would you go about forming a doctrine there? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot to build on. There is a lot to build on, right? So the National mm. Party has got this great track record on treaty settlements, Absolutely. as you say. Yeah. When they, when, when, with, with e <laughs> 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 it's always subjective. But, yeah, yeah. but um, you know, when they put in... Well, Crispinism uh, was, was, yeah, widely well, regarded Well, do we yeah. ever settle a treaty, though? <laughs> yeah, okay. no. yeah, well, yeah, the, the grievances, anyway. Yeah, yeah. The historic grievances. And, and, and then the next part is to build on how do we have that partnership thing going forward. That's the part that the National Party has yeah. to do that work exactly, on. Exactly, yeah. But Chris Finlayson is a good, great, great example because he's somebody who went to every regional conference for the party and spoke to members and persuaded them on the things that the party was doing and got that over the line and you, you have to put that work in for mm. the national party you, you do um, and um, but you've got to you should build on those successes and you should and, and, and there is a great conservative case for recognising um, uh, rangatiratanga and, uh, and, and Māori autonomy and localism. Mm. Um, the party she just has to do the intellectual grunt work to develop that in a way that can be readily understood. I'll push on that and say that it needs to do that work to co-develop it. It has to be co-constructed with Māori on the ground. And, and that's the, one of the problems the party has, is that because of the red mm. wave, we lost, the, or the National Party, lost so many seats, and it's Māori caucus is down to, like, just two guys, mm. you know? So you've got Simon Bridges and you've got uh, Shane Retty, and, you know, you lost, um, so you lost Wanganui, so yeah. you lost, um, uh, which is meant to be a safe seat. So it wasn't like um, there was, for want of candidates, we lost East, East Coast Bays. Mm. Um, and so um, the, the, one of the problems the party has is that um, to have those conversations, um, it's, it's hard when your Māori caucus mm. is so small, you know? Moko, from, from a politician's perspective, what would be your advice to other political colleagues looking to establish Māori wards and other councils around New Zealand? Oh, to, to not take no for an answer for starters, because if that had happened, we would have settled with our no vote last year. Yeah. Um, but to work on it and to listen to people on the ground, our iwi and our hapu called on us multiple times to mm. establish Māori wards as a mechanism to um, tino ranga tiratanga for them at home and we did so. So I know that there are councils, six on my list that I know of, who will be looking at it before the deadline cut off on the 21st of May. Kia kaha. Okay. And you're going to run for national next election, right? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the nature of the doctrine, perhaps. Work on that doctrine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tepania, <laughs> uh, Liam here and Lara Greaves, thank you very much yeah. for your time. Up next on Q&A, controversial Australian philosopher Peter Singer on cancel culture, free speech and the ethics of COVID-19. Well, what we've learnt once again, unfortunately, is that the affluent nations think of themselves first and only later consider the rest of the world. Kia ora e te whana, hoki mai, welcome back. Peter Singer is often called the world's most influential philosopher. A professor at Princeton University, he's just launched a peer-reviewed journal where academics can anonymously submit arguments on controversial subjects. The first edition includes opposing arguments on gender identity, a defence of some blackface makeup, and an essay that argues criminals should be sentenced to enforced comas instead of prison. But do those arguments need special protection? I asked, I asked Professor Singer about the Journal of Controversial Ideas. We are concerned that there's been a narrowing of the range of acceptable topics for discussion, both in academic life and more broadly. And that narrowing is enforced by 
uh, intimidation and abuse and sometimes risks to one's career if one publishes on these topics. So we want to provide a journal that will have rigorous academic standards for the quality of the work, but won't require authors to put their name to it if they wish to publish under a pseudonym. Why are you concerned that discussion is being narrowed? We've seen a number of incidents in which uh, people have been abused, uh, they've had death threats against them, and uh, there have been calls for their article to be retracted and for them to be dismissed. And some people have been dismissed from positions that they uh, held or were offered. So there are you know, really serious consequences for breaching these boundaries of, of what you can discuss on a, a, a range of controversial areas. And, and we think that that's regrettable. We think that there really should be a very wide scope for freedom of discussion on a whole range of issues. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have taboos that say, you can't discuss this because you might offend somebody. That's not a good enough reason for saying you can't discuss a serious issue that concerns the community. Could you give us an example of something that's caused you particular concern? Yeah, for example, there was uh, a young uh, female academic who published an article uh, which related to the way in which people can change their identity, uh, their gender identity, by, by making a statement that they are of a certain gender, even if that was not the gender they were recognised as being at birth. Uh, and she argued that if people can make this change, why can't they make a similar change with regard to changing their race? But many of the people who think that you should be able to change your gender just by making a statement that you identify with a certain gender reject the idea that you should be able to change your race by making a similar statement. So they found this uh, article offensive. Um, they didn't actually try to refute the argument or explain what the difference between the two is. They just said um, some people, um, marginalised black people, people with gender identity uh, who've changed that will be offended by this article uh, and so it should be retracted. And that had the potential to harm the career of this of the author, um, who's a woman named Rebecca Tuval, who um, didn't have tenure at the time mm. uh, and also was subject to a lot of abuse. So, you know, she could well have been inhibited from writing on that topic uh, in future, although I thought she made an interesting argument that whether you agree with it or not, was worth having out there. What is it about that gender identity issue that has led it to take such a central role in this free speech debate? It's, it's almost as if it's a continuation of the movements to say that we should have equal rights for gay people um, and for, for lesbians and uh, others. So it's, it's as if the, the, the group that works for that has sort of said, well, we have to have solidarity with people who are transgender. And look, I, I totally agree that, you know, obviously we should not discriminate against people who are transgender in terms of employment or uh, other areas. We should accept their, you know, freedom to dress as they choose. But there is a question, I guess, about because we have some areas that are for, reserved for women only or we have sporting competitions that are for women only, there clearly are questions about what it should take to qualify as a woman for those purposes. Um, and I think it's reasonable to discuss them. And I, I, in a way, I think the idea that we can't discuss them is the problem more than the question of what is the right answer here. Do you personally have a position? Are, are trans women women in your eyes? One, one could say they're of the feminine gender if they choose that. Um, are they 
is is woman a biological category? That's really the question. Um, obviously, some of them are not biologically female. I think that it, it would be less confusing if we made a sharper distinction between gender and sex. At the start of this interview, you referenced a narrowing of discussion, both in an academic context and a broader context. And I, I just wonder if there is a risk we conflate discussion in academia with people on social media or talkback radio complaining about consequences for their offensive views. Well, I do think that uh, it is in the academic context where freedom of discussion ideas is particularly important, but also where you hope to have standards of rigour of argument, which is what we're doing with the journal because we're sending Mm. submissions out for peer review to get experts to review them. On Twitter, of course, people can say whatever they like um, and can can be quite abusive. Uh, And I think that's different. You know, I, I wouldn't really want to restrict people's freedom of speech on those social media to some extent, I think if, if people don't like the abuse that they get, just don't go to your Twitter feed, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can live without Twitter and ignore what people are saying. Uh, aren't some of the people who complain about deplatforming and cancel culture the same people who were just a couple of years ago saying that political correctness has gone mad? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're related phenomena, I think. Uh, you know, you know, there's, there's a, there was a continuum mm. from being politically correct to um, cancel culture. Uh, but look, you know, p- these tend to be people who are conservative and they're uh, criticizing the left. I think we shouldn't forget that historically it's been the right that has restricted freedom of speech most. It's not all from the left, but in the present moment um, in the countries that we're mostly involved with, you know, English speaking countries and European countries, most of the restrictions have come from the left. You've presented ideas on all manner of subjects from uh, the ethical arguments for vegetarianism to inequality and poverty, but your most controversial argument perhaps, where you argue that the parents of severely disabled babies should be able to euthanise their children, led to complaints here and led to Sky City rescinding its invitation for you to speak. You've since found a different venue to speak at in August of this year, but what did you make of that experience? Uh, look, I suppose somebody who owns a venue can choose who is going to speak there. Um, and uh, if the owner of that Sky City chose that you know, didn't want me to speak, they have that right. Um, I regret that they didn't actually contact me about it and you know check whether the views that they were being told I hold are in fact my views or why I hold those views. I think they might have understood my position better if they had. Uh, I know that some of your critics say that you have not been in a position to, um, to, to validly try and quantify the worth of someone's life if they are severely disabled because you yourself do not have experience as a severely disabled person. Do people have to have a personal lived experience in order to make the most valid argument about identity? So for example, could a white person argue issues of race with the same validity as a person of colour? Uh, if they're not talking about their own personal experiences, but they're talking about evidence that they've gathered from a variety of sources, then I think they could. Because all of these individual cases are different, right? Uh, What life is like with a severely disabled child Mm. um, and what it's like for the child and for the parents is different from case to case. And uh, it's not as if there's one view uh, on this issue about disability. 
I get letters from parents saying, I should have had the right to provide euthanasia for my disabled child mm -hmm. because it's been miserable for the child and it's been devastating for our family. And of course, I get other people who take the opposite view. So, so there's no one subjective experience that gives you the best perspective. It's really best if you look at the range of experiences. Um, and in this case, of course, uh, what I'm doing is I'm saying leave it up to the parents to make that decision. I'm not trying to make the decision. And, and, but does that does, does that apply to all arguments? Do, do, you know, if, do you need to have a personal lived experience in order to make the most valid argument when it comes to any form of identity? No, I think you can look at the variety, the, the, the range of people who've mm. had these experiences. Um, and some of them have been good and some of them have been bad. Mm -hmm. And any one subjective experience isn't going to tell you that. New Zealand is considering changes to hate speech laws. What would be your advice to policymakers? My advice would be um, try to draw a sharp distinction between what is really hate speech, that is what is emotional, what is trying to stir up hatred to people. Um, and I think it's, it's legitimate to have laws against that. But try to make sure that the laws don't cover discussion about public policies which are based on attempts to produce evidence and reason and argument. I think a free society ought to allow wide scope for that, mm -hmm. even if some people strongly disagree. Um, I think those are things that we ought to be able to thrash out without fear of um, you know, being fined or even imprisoned mm -hmm. for having violated laws against hate speech. From an ethical perspective, what have we learnt from the global vaccine rollout? Well, what we've learned once again, unfortunately, is that the affluent nations think of themselves first and only later consider the rest of the world. And so we've had this situation where we have you know, enough vaccines, or Australia and New Zealanders, they have very low levels of COVID-19. Um, it's really much less urgent that we get vaccinated than that people in India get vaccinated, for example. But um, we have, because of the intellectual property laws, the patent laws, we've made it more difficult for those countries to produce their own vaccine. I was heartened, though, to see that President Biden was calling for the waiving of the patent laws in this particular case, um, and I hope that the world will go along with that so we can make it as easy as possible for other countries to get the vaccines. Do you think New Zealand and Australia have acted morally? Probably we would have been more ethical if we waited and said, look, other countries with much higher levels of the of cases, much higher death rates, um, they're the ones who really need the vaccine. And even though it's, it's tough for us because we will have to keep closed and that's not good for our economy, but, but still, um, we can wait a little bit longer before getting vaccines. Professor Singer, before we let you go, I, I note that one of your recent endeavours is a new translation and edited version of an ancient Roman novel in Latin, The Golden Ass. What prompted you to, to pick the project? So one of the things that first attracted me to this is that it is a book about a man who gets transformed into an ass, a donkey, and then suffers as a donkey the things that happen to donkeys in the Roman Empire. Um, all sorts of various kinds of cruelty, effectively being in a, a slave. Um, and it's a very sympathetic to that to that uh, animal and that's very unusual in Roman times but apart from that it's it's just a, a good fun read it's an adventure story um, it's got a lot of humor in it uh, you've got parallels with human nature that you can recognize today there's sexual episodes in it that are quite fun as well so I thought why why don't people know about this book um, as much you know why is it so little read when it's quite possibly 
the earliest surviving novel that we have. Mm. So I wanted to produce an edition that would make it a little bit more readable, new translations, some illustrations, cut out some passages that were digressions. Um, and I hope that a lot of people will now want to read it. That's Professor Peter Singer. He'll speak at Trust's Arena in Auckland, Tamaki Makoto, on August 7th. And his new book is called The Golden Ass. Up next, the new MP, who's the first to admit she's a bit surprised to be there. Do you think you're going to win, Emily? No! No one thought I was going to win. The, 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 the majority previously was 11,000. That Jacinda... The significant bunch of first-term MPs have now clocked up six months in the job. If you still don't know who all of them are, we're here to help with that. Here's Fina Rowan with the latest of our first-term faces. Hello. Hey, it is you. Hi, really good. Oh, oh, is that electric? Hi, I'm Mark Cameron, Act List MP up here in Northland. I've been farming here for 30 years. My, 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 my mother was a solo mum when I was a little guy in Henderson, and we had family friends up here. So I actually started farming through my family friends. Why did you choose ACT? They listened. They actually listened. David and I have known each other a fair old while, and he listened when so many hadn't. And I'd been a national voter for a long time. And David said to me quite candidly, you're the guy, you're the authentic voice that we need to hear. And I said, whoa, I'm just a farmer. Has your great leader been to your farm? No, not yet. And, and have I, you invited and I, Yeah, David I am. So I, was, I was deeply aggrieved. I said to David, you've got to get up here and put a cowshed apron on. And he said, don't hold me to it. And I said, look, because he's a very busy man. And withstanding, that was about six weeks post that conversation where he said he would. Champion man. Very good, Lee, eh? So you don't consider yourself one of those uh, gentleman farmers? No, like no. Traditional national? <laughs> no, no, no. Gracious me, I live on the farm every day. And when I'm down in Wellington, I'm down in Wellington. But, I mean, how many MPs have actually been bailed up by bulls on the farm? Oh, busted, you have? Yes, busted collarbones, busted ribs. Um, really? And, well, it's the nature of farming, and they're, they're bigger than I am, and every now and again you get one that decides he doesn't want to go out the gateway. I'm actually at home in these, so it's tremendous. It's a bit different, and um, as I acclimate, I appreciate that I'll only get better at working with Wellingtonians. <laughs> Did you have to buy a suit? Yeah, I had to buy three. <laughs> I like, look, my gracious me, the one, the one that I had was like 30 years old and I think the mothballs, you know, the, the, the silverfish and the mothballs and everything else had been, the, been rid of it. The big thing for me, I actually wanted to see farmers, that part of society that celebrated and lauded like we once were, well, we're not anymore. So I want to put that back in the middle and say, you're actually really, really good people. Don't you throw a few darts around the whole climate change thing, or have I got that wrong? It's not that, that, none of, that any of us are, are denying the climate science. It's just that the language has only been slated against one half of the conversation. So we've got to bring it back to the middle. And my kidneys are failing, um, and I'm, I'm not upset about it um, emotionally, other than to say it's time short, shorter than I perhaps thought I was going to have. I've got an autoimmune disease and I think the thing is Fenner, I'm hellishly determined and I, I liken it to one of those weeds that comes up in the crack in the concrete, you pull the blessed thing out and then five minutes later it's back again. Massey Ferguson. 
That's all right, the seat's here. Oh, great. If you've got good to add to the world, then bloody well go out and do it. And here I am. So, yeah, that's my story. Kia ora, I'm Emily Henderson, and I'm the new MP for Whangarei. Because you were brought up here yes. mainly, weren't you? Yeah, no, I've lived here yeah. since I was seven. So from Wellington, family arrived here on a cold and stormy night um, about 40 something years ago. Yeah, okay. So yeah. you, so, and you went to Auckland University, you did your law. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then you went to Cambridge? I went to Cambridge. Well, I came back here and worked for a couple of years um, as a family court lawyer, and then I left when I was 25, um, and just before I was 25. And yeah, did the PhD. Um, did the PhD? Yeah. So you're Dr Emily I'm Henderson. Dr Emily, okay. yeah. So but you not are a high kind. achiever. You're a really <laughs> You are, aren't you? You're a high achiever. Uh, I'm fairly driven, I think is the way to put it. Right. Now I've won. It's incredible. I've got this opportunity. Didn't you think you are going to win, Emily? No. No one against thought I, Dr Shingriti, no really? No one thought I was going to win. The, 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 the majority previously was 11,000. That Jacinda... After 40 years of neoliberalism and trickle-down economics, that's what trickles down in Whangarei. So you mentioned quite a bit in your maiden speech about the deprivation in Whangarei, in this area. How much in touch with those real needs are you? Yeah. Well, you know, in the first place, I grew up here um, and I went to low decile schools. Uh, so I've been immersed in what's real in this community for a long time. Um, plus, I actually came back from university age 21 and started um, my law practice here uh, at my dad's firm. And I started as a family court lawyer. That was what I wanted to do. So you were so exposed to all those straight problems. Yeah. Straight in. So this is becoming an icon of Whangarei now? It certainly is. old Hontavasa? Yeah. We're very, very excited about it. It's opening in December. Um, and, you know, if you ever get a chance to go up, it's amazing. So it's going to revitalise So is that all thanks to the Zealand First Provincial Growth Fund? No, it isn't. It was a coalition government at that point led by Labour. Right, um, I see. It is... It is incredibly important here. We needed something. We need a draw card. We need excitement. And this is a, a piece of that puzzle. Uh, not to mention it's seriously cool building. Oh, hold on. Hello. The staff make me take a couple of weekends off, and I always get a bit grumpy with them. Because um, you have four children. I have. Oh, yeah, no, I do have the four kids. Well, they get Sundays. No, it, 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 is, it is difficult to have that balance. I am the Whangarei's lawyer. I'm, I'm the lawyer for the town, and, and that is the way I see my job. Fina Owen with that report. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Ngā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for watching and thanks to the Q&A team. Kia pai te rā mama. Happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. Stick around for marae. Hei te rā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.